0: Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the marketing minds at doconvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you. We're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak.
1: Episode number 72. Becca is joining I... us this week.
0: Hi. I point you every time I say that, Andrew. No,
1: is there a picture or <laughs> no. you're looking at like my Slack No, I'm just bio. like
0: pointing forward like it's, it's um, yeah. you.
1: Pretend I in a couple weeks we we probably have a live I know. episode. I'm yeah, we'll have a live episode in, in a couple freezing weeks. freezing Columbus, I'll bring sorry, I
0: Becca is here to keep us sane she uh, and, and organized.
2: I don't know if is. I'm the best at that, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you're good at making ads because yes. we were just talking. You you made like thirty different campaigns in yes. the last thirty six hours or so. So
2: it's definitely crunch time in marketing yeah. Yeah. land.
0: Maybe we'll talk about that, but we're going to try to stay focused. We're going to try to stay focused. And it is crunch time. How about that? We'll just lead in with that. It is crunch time here. Things are busy. This is my eighth call of the day. And you can ask my wife. I don't like to talk that much for real. So we just got a lot going on, a lot of good things happening, but we're going to try to keep the show rolling here and get on to the next call. So story time, we definitely got all your guys' feedback about keeping it. However, we also don't want to force folks to tell stories if if they just don't have anything that is story worthy this past week, maybe that's okay too. So Becca, you got one, I know. You can get to start oh, I, off, but we're going to give yeah. Andrew the week off. Yeah, all right. No stories.
2: I definitely <laughs> have one. So the sales hand and the marketing hand, you, you got to have two hands, right?
0: <laughs> Hopefully. Definitely.
2: Hopefully. Well, they work together. So how as a marketing person, do you know what's happening in the sales? Like, you know, it's crunch time now and we're trying to get all these ads done and get homes sold so we can get our sales goals met. But what happens when you're working on ads and then you don't know what's going on in the sales funnel and then all of a sudden you've created several ads and the sales agent calls you up and says, hey, why are you advertising? I sold that today.
0: i mm. like,
2: I didn't even know you were working on it. So how right. do you know, right?
0: Yeah, you got to have some kind of process in place for this. And no one's going to be perfect at all. But no, sometimes people ask us, you know, what meeting should I be in? What shouldn't I be in? And in terms of sales meetings with salespeople, I think that can be a regular, but not every time interaction yeah. from marketing. But for me, the meeting with, owners or division presidents and the sales managers. So at Heartland, we had three regions and three sales managers. And so my weekly meeting with Marty, Scott, the COO at the time, and those three people, I was there every time because they would be saying things like, well, we think we're going to get a deal on this inventory home, or we think this model sale is going to got two people working on it. So yeah, that that might not be in the CRM, most likely won't be in the CRM, sad to say, Uh, that kind (sighs) of level of detail. But that's an instance where being in those meetings, you can pick up some extra color and details that you might not otherwise be able to tell just from the raw numbers of what's going on.
2: Yeah. Or if you've got a sales tracking sheet where it tracks which lot numbers and which communities are being sold as they're sold, you obviously may not know if they're early in the funnel and they haven't sold yet, but if they've at least come in as an offer, hopefully... Your sales manager can give you the heads up on things like that. And then you can check your sales report to make sure that nothing's sold.
0: And a lot of people also do a sales email chain. Uh, We did that eight or nine years ago where once a sale is not ratified, but it's been written just emailing out to let sales coordinator, marketing, and other salespeople know and kind of celebrate. Sometimes other parts of the company get mad about that. They're like, stop interrupting our day with another sale. You know? Yeah, so it's you just, not, it's
1: fine. That's the most important thing that happens. Every no, no, it's not,
0: that's, not for them. They like to be <laughs> grumpy about it. So that's, that's fine. Funny. You just take them off. But um, it is good just from that kind of pulse of, of what's going on out there to tell to yeah. that problem. I mean,
2: yep. That's our purpose, right? Get home sold. So it's good to know when that, that happens. That
0: is the purpose. Yeah. Get home sold at a profitable margin. Yes. Uh, there It would, <laughs> would be the caveat or the asterisk there. Uh, my, my quick... This is not so much a story as a cautionary tale, maybe. I don't know. I I went to a Builder 20 meeting in Key West, a great group. We don't normally do Builder 20 meetings uh, just because of time, but four or five of the builders in that group are folks who work with Do Convert, and so as a kind of a thank you to them. I was happy to rough it down in Key West when it was 40 degrees here in Ohio (laughs) and uh, do a quick talk with them about disruption and change and all those other, other buzzwords. It was a great time. But one of the things that struck me is overall, I think, I don't know exactly how many builders there were. They call a builder 20 group because they'd like to have 20. I think there were maybe 16. Let's just say 14 of the 16, every interaction I had at dinner one, dinner two, or uh, giving the talk for the most part was kind of like, we got all this stuff figured out, or we're having a great year or profits great. And and of course, there was the kind of this feeling of, but we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Which is why I was there, right? We don't know what the next quarter is going to be, but for right now, like I know you probably got some good ideas for us, Kevin. But like everything is just rolling along, and we talked about this at the online summit as well. That quick story I gave about Muhammad Ali and Superman doesn't need seatbelts when he's going on a plane with turbulence, and the and the co- mm-hmm. uh, stewardess saying Superman doesn't need planes either. Put on your seatbelt, dummy. And she didn't say dummy, but. You know, just put on your seatbelt (laughs) and and kind of this fine line between being optimistic and confident and overconfident. And it was the first time, and this is the cautionary part, it's the first time that I've felt like that since 2006, 2007. Hmm. And while economically speaking, I don't think there's any sign of an impending change. Things seem to be pretty steady. Even we checked out the Google trend data on homes, uh, homes for sale, new homes for sale, that kind of stuff. The trend has not come down nearly as steeply as it typically does by the end of October. That might also mean that November and December, the floor could fall out for one of those months and it'll be short lived, but it just seems like we've got to go down further than we typically have. And so that, that could happen. But anyway, it it was great to spend time with those guys. Great group of builders. They're all really smart, but just kind of this overconfidence in general about today was a little bit unsettling. And, and I mean, a lot of them are, but they'd have to look to find something that they're not doing well. So I get it. If, if you're one of those people listening, I'm, I'm not blaming you for that. It's just collectively as a whole, I was like, huh, I don't feel like I've interacted with this many builders in one place feeling quite this positive about the current situation. Interesting. That's interesting. don't yeah. know. There's Do you no think they story or felt more. like
1: they have like their, and this, of course, they're, they're the owners. They're, they're thinking all aspects of of the company. Uh, Correct, but like yeah. marketing, they're like, cool, we got this big checkbox here Like on, on tech and marketing. It's hard to, I'm trying to think what yeah, I want to say without saying too much. There's, yeah, uh, there's all those other categories. Right, people
0: are, on the bus. You know, there's yeah. a little bit of, yeah, our customers aren't always happy with us, but then it's kind of, you know, wink, wink, but how much do we yeah. really need to try? Again, <laughs> it's it's not anyone individually. It's just kind of this collective. And I also wonder, to be fair, since it's just the three of us talking here, it could just be that you know some of the bravado of being around the other people in the group you don't want to kind of admit any this is true yeah failing that also could be it you know very
2: true
0: hopefully that's it because i just i don't ever want us to be in a place because it's going to make the next market turn worse if we're all completely unprepared or even aware of what our weaknesses are before they hit us i mean it's just going to be more painful at that point so Speaking of painful, it's not painful at all to give us a call. You just call 404-369-2595. You can leave us a voicemail. Two people have done it. The bravest people I know, three people have done it. Andrew's wife, I recover once, and two other (laughs) folks. So give us a call, 404-369-2595. Ask anything you want. Give us any feedback you want. And if you want us to make your voice like Darth Vader, just tell us. We can make that happen.
1: Any question. There's nothing off limits. Halloween is coming up.
0: You can just ask what I'm getting my kids for Christmas. I'll tell you. Just don't tell, don't tell them so they don't listen. That's true. All yeah. right. Over um, I, to the news from marketingweek.com. This one, I'm okay if we only actually talk about this one. We'll talk about others, but that's how much favorite I like one. this article. The headline is Adidas. We overinvested in digital advertising. Subheadline: Adidas admits that a focus on efficiency rather than effectiveness led it to overfocus on ROI and over-invest in performance and digital at the expense of brand. That's so, interesting. That's... So go over and read it, but but some of the highlights are kind of just along that theme. Uh, Andrew, I think you got a couple notes here.
1: Yeah, I got some in here. And I think it's, before I dump it into, into those, I think we have to look at this and then put like our home builder filter on. Yeah. For this, the shoe is more commodity. There's choices. It's not yep. always it's like, the circumstantial thing, like you know, this is all like I don't really need shoes. but We I only sell shoes.
0: these shoes on this side of the river. We only sell these shoes in this school Correct. district. There are definitely things that don't. You know, <laughs> so this I think they get is
1: you like know, brand biggest investment. Yeah, exactly. But, like brand. Yeah. I think brand. Like as far as like Adidas versus Nike, people make that choice. Um, so, but here's here's some quotes that I thought were interesting. Its attribution modeling was based on last click, and it did not do anything. Do any brand tracking? Huh. The next quote. Products were too often sold on promotion and creating price sensitivity. So mm-hmm. I, I read this whole thing and I'm and just thinking about shoes and, and just reading headlines and just knowing, I don't really know everything about shoes, but I feel like I, I kind of know like a little bit, like I this <laughs> is definitely like subpar, not subpar, but like Nike's the premium, like that has all the interest. You look on Google trends. It's like tenfold. They're the always part of the it.
0: public conversation. They're part on of a it. Regular There's basis.
1: culture yeah. with Nike. But then sports and just people collecting. So there's all this interest around Nike. But then Adidas is like, yeah, it's kind of like not leftovers, but this kind of reinforced like, oh, but well, here you go. They're going after this metric versus trying to build the brand and build demand for Adidas. Yeah, yeah it's super interesting.
2: The um, the products were too often sold on promotion and creating price sensitivity kind of, you know, is pretty relevant for home building, because obviously, we want to keep our prices up. And especially this time of year, everybody starts to think, well, do I need to do promotion to get rid of all my inventory? How do Mm -hmm. I get rid of it?
0: (laughs) So exactly. And there's a kind of this cultural awareness. And sometimes it's microcosms of this there's certain brands and businesses that you just know, like nobody pays full price for this. If I pay full price for this, I'm, yeah. I'm stupid. Yeah. So my guess, kind of reading between the lines here, when they talk about efficiency, there's there's no doubt that in e-commerce you see this a lot, where, hey, if we just reduce price by 2%, we might sell 300% more stuff. Yeah. And so the net dollar is a win because we're going after volume. And that, you know, one of the lines yeah. that I really liked in here was, uh, the head of marketing said the reason is that we had a short-termism because we were trying to grow sales very quickly yeah we had a problem that we were focusing on the wrong metrics the short term because we have fiduciary responsibilities to shareholders the funny part about that is he's talking about focusing on the short term because every quarter they're they're going to the public mm-hmm. yeah but Amazon has shown the wisdom if you can get everyone on the same page with this in terms of shareholders of saying actually quarter to quarter might be a little bit, Interesting. We might, we might make a lot of money. We might not make much money because we're actually focused hundred percent on the long-term value of the Mm -hmm. company. And I think that's another way of looking at this is we say this all the time, but it's worth saying again, we don't dislike branding at all. We don't dislike pretty things at all. We don't dislike good stories at all. Those are all part of the mix. It's just that historically the balance has been too far towards brand And now there are builders out there, not any of the folks I can think of that we're working with now, but there are builders out there that we've engaged with or just are friends with who definitely just are are like, it's just all about getting as many leads as possible for as little dollar amount as possible. And that means bait and switch. It means gating Mm -hmm. content. It means forgetting about what the user experience is like. It just means get as many leads for as few dollars as possible. And so I definitely, I can understand how some point, and maybe for some of you listening it's now, you do have to swing back towards thinking about brand because you can't ignore that completely. And the last thing before I shut up for a bit is (laughs) I always give that example of Marty Gillespie, who is, I loved him as a boss. He would walk by and he would just be like, I had this idea of doing something crazy. Like, could we have, I mean, it wasn't this crazy, but could we throw a party for all the dog owners? And hold it at the dog park around the corner from our neighborhood. And I'd be like, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll think about that. I'll add it to the list of things to consider. And then I would just never bring it up again. And I would wait to see like if it came up three or four times. Okay, <laughs> oh this is this yes. is not going to go away. we got to think about this. Yeah. But he was every year I made myself and I, I promise him like every year or maybe every six months, we're going to do one of those crazy ideas as long as it fits with our brand and extends our brand. Because not everything can be a dollar cent you know, ROI discussion, because ROI is almost always only measured in terms of short term, it's not measured in terms of long term value. And when you're talking about brand, that's what you're building. Anyway, good article, go back and and read it in the show notes, Um, lots of other good stuff in there. But it was was, I think I was also just really excited to see a marketer be honest in that sense of like, yeah, we just swung too Mm -hmm. far that way. And we've got to come back.
1: Yeah. Do you think, real, real. not that we want to spend the entire time on this one, but do you think, so I view this more as they had, so they had this marketing, they weren't focused on the right thing. And then brand could also get tied into this like weird word, like what, what, what are we doing building brand? But uh-huh. I kind of viewed it as like more product issue. Like Nike product is better than Adidas. More people are talking about Nike and pictures well, with Nike because of the product, not necessarily because they like Nike, but because there's. Say there might be like 20 models of Nike shoes that people like versus Adidas has four or something. If that makes. sense? I'm
0: just, I I do, and I I think there's something to that in terms of a product like a shoe. You've got to create a story within the product because we all own shoes. And so unless the shoes are falling apart, like what is the story (laughs) and the brand around? Like we created this new kind of foam and now there's a newer kind of foam. And now we use foam with bubbles in it. And yeah, so, so hey. I think there's some of that, but I think it is more, um, advertising marketing and branding in the traditional sense of, I mean, I can't name them all, but I've seen, wh- I, I have personally watched way more videos from Nike that has nothing to do with their apparel yeah, than I have ever seen from Adidas ever. Like oh, if I'm sure. thinking of uh, a golf video from Adidas kind of sticks in my mind of, of a golfer that they had sponsored who was just kind of following him in his life. But in terms of just, are you an athlete and you like high performance? We're here for you. The product's there in the background and maybe has a close up. But I just think Nike is intentionally invested in more things that don't have short term ROI. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And okay. Adidas is more traditional e commerce and retail in that sense.
2: Does Nike do like limited? Batch shoes.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think they both,
1: yeah, I think they both did, but Nike a lot more. And then, like, the, I forgot his name, or I can't pronounce his name, so I didn't remember it, but the first guy (laughs) to run the two hour marathon under two hours, he was Mm -hmm. a Nike's. So then you're like, oh, shoot, well, that's like huge brand building. Yeah. Because of the product. I I guess I'm thinking like it goes back to the product, which might be more like with home builders, it's you could only build in sub tier at this. I don't know. I'm not a builder, like the person making the decision, but like, if you want to be the premium, you can't have not premium locations, not premium Uh, products, right? right? Like it needs to be, you have all of it. You could kind of, I'm sure Nike, they have $40 shoes, but then they also have the high-end fancy stuff. Yeah.
0: I was going to just say, be careful what you wish for or be careful the brand you build because that's exactly, the danger is what Nike has to do to maintain that brand now and the amount of money and energy and effort. I'm not saying they shouldn't, But what I'm saying is Nike, Coca-Cola, those kind of brands, they now have, they have to be part of the conversation on a continual basis. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so this is, this goes back to kind of a different idea that, that I've talked about in a slightly different way. Know who you are, or if you're not the owner, know who you work for. And they might say, I want to be the luxury brand. Yeah. But if you know, because you work for them, that you're not, and you're not on the path to be, and you don't actually care about customer service, really. Like Those are all things that it's probably be better just to find somewhere else to work than to create this. Because even if you're wildly True. successful, yeah, company is going down because now expectations are set at a different place that you can't reach. Yeah, even higher. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Cool. Good combo.
0: That's a good combo. Uh, <laughs> so from 30,000-foot level down to the... 200 foot level (laughs) from from digiday.com as the third party cookie crumbles publishers scramble for alternatives so when it comes to cookies my favorite is the fortune cookie which by the way was not invented in any part of asia at all purely western Mm. Uh, we had a chinese exchange student who stayed with us one time and we went went to a chinese restaurant and they brought out the cookies and he's like what's that and my dad's like, it's a fortune cookie, don't you know? He's like, he just starts laughing. The what? Never heard of such a thing. Third party cookies and why are they crumbling? It's all about privacy. So a third party cookie is any cookie that's not owned by the company collecting the data from their own website or their own point of purchase system. So examples would be, you know, the Facebook Pixel is first party, it's a first party data source. For Facebook, it is a third-party data source for Facebook. And so this is just a really cute creative headline that basically says everyone's in a scramble to own fully all the data from their own customers themselves instead of relying exclusively on third parties. Mm -hmm.
1: So if you're a publisher, you own the site, you're trying to find a way to, you own the first-party data, you have more rights to it. How can I monetize this? legally being that Rand fishkin had a really good point on his twitter it was like a day or two ago he talked about the what's the uh acronym in the uk they did the um gdrp oh the yeah. he had this whole mm-hmm. conversation about it like he thought he, he had a good point like it's only made the internet worse like no one knows what it is you have to click this like i accept this cookie thing you don't even understand it yes and people were like yeah. no you're wrong he's like well like the 99 and he, it was it was interesting to read
0: no he's, he's right
1: yeah, I agree
0: with them. Yeah. It's made it easier for the larger companies to do business and harder for the smaller ones. And then the consumer at the end of the day, no impact because you just want to get that dumb pop up thing off your screen as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So you don't even. True. Just like we always talk about, you give them the tool, no one has the time or cares to put in the energy to really understand what is the decision I'm trying to be asked to make here. So, yeah, I mean, the, the article talks about basically News Corp, which owns the Wall Street Journal, the Times, the Sun, and the UK. They established their own ID for readers on the site because they don't want to just be relying on Google's cookie or some other third-party cookie source tracking who's reading what and from what device. They want to own that themselves. And and all of this is just because of the fear that at some point, what is the next thing beyond GDPR is just you own your own data. And I think at some point, I would not be surprised a decade or so from now where there are laws put in place where it's first party collection of data only combined with temperancy of data. If that's even a word, meaning you can keep this kind of data. Like you can keep the customer's contact information forever, but what web pages the customer looked at and what different houses they priced out before they ended up purchasing, that's got to be deleted after six months because that's just part of the problem we kind of say it jokingly of glad I'm glad I'm not a kid today because everything I ever do would be tracked and monitored and, and around forever. That's kind of part of the problem is that everything we do is around forever. Yeah. And companies can't help but collect it all. And so I would not be surprised if at some point that's the next thing is destruction of data, even if it is first party.
1: Yep. So I think that's what long-term impact could really change the, uh, I guess if you're buying programmatically or on display networks, which Mm -hmm. we don't really Mm -hmm. do much of that because put your money on Facebook. (laughs) But I don't know if there'd be even more networks or the prices would, I feel like this would just create prices to be higher because there's just more complexity to this individual group of sites of publishers giving access to their
0: data. Yes, but also it could, I mean, I I think you're right. That's definitely one path. The other path is advertising becomes less expensive if you have your own good data that you don't need to, yeah. to pay for, for someone else's. It's true. So it's it just depends. if it, it goes back to the idea of, again, the big companies who can do this well are going to be at a huge advantage over someone building 15 homes a year because they've got yeah. IT teams and systems and processes to collect data uh, first party and, and others won't. All right, my head hurts. So let's move on to something... <laughs> lighter ha 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 uh, open ai <laughs> this is from kdnuggets.com i don't know where i found this people always ask like where do you find some of i want to know things? too because
1: this site is like from 19 it's
0: hard but it's, it's, it's there's a lot of cute pictures on here uh, yes I, lots I of great think. graphic work I like so the gra- yep. i think jeff turner shared this on twitter you should follow oh, jeff turner if you that don't would make sense. that would yeah, make sense that yeah i think sense. that makes sense but basically, OpenAI, which is one of the companies he talked about during his keynote, where they were not going to release this this tool that would allow AI to write an article because it seemed too human. With just hmm. little amounts of data, they decided not to release it out of public safety concerns. Yeah. But the headline here is OpenAI, that same company, tried to train artificial intelligent agents, think players, to play hide and seek. But instead, they were shocked by what they learned. And it's just it's this awesome i mean there's infographics there's screenshots of this happening kind of played out where this this concept is one ai system is the is the people trying to seek out the people hiding and the other ai system is the people hiding and kind of the iteration that ended up happening led to it being impossible for those people to ever be found because <laughs> the ai insane. systems essentially just like if you look at the little graph Um, kind of halfway down the page, it shows that the seekers at the beginning were winning by a lot. And then after, I think this is 50,000 games of hide and seek, the hiders found out all of the limits at the edge, like how to break the system without breaking it, how to hide in a certain way that the seekers couldn't climb over boxes to find them. All that. I mean, it's just, this article is, I mean, you need caffeine in your system to read it and pay attention, but it's also just fascinating and basically after that 50,000th game of hide and seek, the seekers never won again. And the story behind this story is just that that is what AI will do is it removes the gray and pushes to extremes on one form. Like we don't have as AI that says win, but play fair. It's yeah. you know, right now where it is, is mm-hmm. win at any cost or lose at any cost or some, there, there's very little in between. Mm-hmm. They just, they find the limits of, of the of the place they're in and they just push it to the exact edge. And I think, I can't remember, but I think when Jeff shared this, it was kind of like, is that the future we all want to live by? Where there is no gray, there's no in-between. In some parts of our lives, you might say yes. In other parts, you're like, well, like art, for example. Do you always just, AI just makes the best art every time. It's D- what does that do? It's weird. To, it's a weird. Right?
1: weird thing to think about.
0: Yeah. Anyway. I'm not sure why we put this on a marketing podcast, but I found it interesting. I think this will influence the
1: world, which will then influence home building and, and where people live uh-huh. and, and yeah. like that, how people function, even down to, I still think long-term like land will be more equal just because of if there's more automation. And so this is the story behind my story is I've learned about grocery delivery, which seems like, you know, what is this like 2017, but not a lot of people do it. And i found it's, it's cheaper because I, I can more efficiently buy things. It shows up to my door. Mm -hmm. So now my schedule on Saturdays, I usually do the shopping for some reason. Saturday and Sunday, I don't have to worry about it. This is amazing. Or throughout the week. And there's a $30 minimum order for free. So it's changed like my shopping behavior. Now imagine those cars are not people and now they're automated cars. So now you could live anywhere sort of, right? Because you don't have to commute as much. Mm -hmm. I think it could change, Mm -hmm. change
0: quite a bit. Yeah, long term. There's lots of things that, that don't directly impact us that eventually will. Yep, for sure. Yeah. All right. The last one from BigCommerce.com, sister site to BigTobacco.com and BigOil.com. <laughs> I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> By the way, this is the uh, first e-commerce platform I learned on. They had a standalone. It was had a different name, but they they sold it as like you put it on your own server, and that was the first one I. This was oh, way back when. It's
0: a small world after all. It's a small all.
1: world. And the guy oh, yeah. has really cool, who started, he had really cool videos, kind of like uh, Rand Fishkin's uh, Whiteboard Fridays. He had similar ones, uh-huh. except only e commerce focused. And so he was the leader of the pack. And then I think Shopify really took over. And now they're kind of coming back. But yeah. Interesting. Good.
0: Yeah. Well, the headline here is go. that the closed beta for checkout on Instagram is here for select U.S. big commerce merchants, uh, which originally when I read the headline, I just meant, I thought it large merchants but they're talking about with their own platform here great screenshots again one that you just need to go see the show notes for but but basically the ability to see a product in this case they're showing the makeup kit you click on that makeup kit it brings you to an instant experience within instagram where you can see um, the size the color the price uh, and you just click check out on instagram it grabs payment from your digital wallet and you're in and out and you bought Hmm. What I'm excited about, of course, is to hack this similar to how we did with collection ads mm -hmm. almost, is it two years now? I feel like almost two a long time now with with collection ads, Uh. uh, which were designed for e-commerce, is to be able to do similar things like this, where you could do streetscape, a streetscape of a neighborhood where you'd see two or three houses. And you'd be able to just from the exterior, just be like, oh, that's an interesting looking one, pull it up. Uh, Of course, we're not going to let people check out and purchase right now, but you could send them a link to learn more or show some details and maybe the inside of what that house looks like and then go look at it on the site. I'm excited to see more progress and ironically, I guess, more changes coming to social because I do feel like with except for the collection ads from a year and a half, two years ago now, it's been a little same, same. I know on last week's episode, which I wasn't on, you guys were talking about the, the polls and the AR and all that. And. Mm-hmm. i mean mostly i just think most of it's gimmicky and it's something that the consumer won't
1: yeah i think it'll be like
0: it'll work for a while one percent the consumer's gonna be like yawn another yeah, pool. Yeah.
1: have you guys seen any of these ads in the wild i've seen them and interact with them the They're e-commerce cool ones, ones? Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. On no Instagram no one wants to sell me
1: anything if you almost any clothing brand it seems like you could and they have a little icon on the picture that looks like okay. a little shopping bag Let's see if All I right. can find a, a
0: brand. Let's see if I can make it happen the next let's, I'm two I'm going to look at Nike. So I'm going go to I'm look at Agara men's shirts. Those are my favorite. That's my favorite men's clothing shirt brand. Let's see. Is brand? Nike doing any? Mostly because the buttons are really nice and thick. Now if I go back on...
1: And then you click view products. Instagram,
0: I will report see. back. Yeah. And see Adidas. I find. there
1: you go. Let's look. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I haven't seen checkout, but I've seen view website for like the call to action. But it does bring up the product yeah. in a instant experience.
0: Yes, I have seen that. I just haven't seen the full checkout checkout. uh, part of it yet.
2: I haven't seen the checkout either, just the website.
0: Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by David Allison. He's the author, lecturer, ex-global VP of marketing, and a mastermind behind the Value Graphics Database. And what does that mean? He's going to tell us. But in really short form, it means that demographics are just part of the story. And he thinks he's found a better way to figure out who your best customers are and then reverse engineer that into the marketing you do to, to reach out to them in the method they want to be reached with the story that they want to be told with the product they want to buy. We'll be right back. All right. And we're back with David Allison, the founder of the Value Graphics Database, author, keynote speaker, advisor to companies all over the world. I would even say futurist, but a whole lot more. And David, super (laughs) excited to have you with us today.
3: I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me over.
0: Absolutely. We got a lot to talk about today because you have a long career, very interesting career, and you're saying some very interesting things and putting that out in the world. But I want to start, if we can where you started in your career in advertising as a writer back in 1985. And just before we get to your full background, how important was the written word back then? And do you think the impact of the importance of written word has changed since you started?
3: I don't think it's possible to move forward without having a firm grasp of how to use language as a weapon. We have such short attention spans today that writing a good, powerful, catchy first line to a post or a headline, that's the key to everything. You're going to lose everybody's attention if you don't know how to put that first sentence together in a way that makes them stop in their tracks and go, whoa, whoa, what's this about? That's the whole goal. We spend all this money and time trying to figure out how to get people to pay attention and then we waste it with a bad piece of copy, That's just Mm -hmm. like, it's fundamental to be able to structure the beginning lines, the opening scene, whatever it is we're talking about. You have to be able to say to your audience, this is for you. Get their attention, build their interest, stop them in their tracks and tell them what you want them to do next, which generally is keep reading or keep watching or keep thinking. But remember when we talk about writing, it's not just about you know, text in a post, someone writes a video, someone writes the audio. That's all about it as well. So even, you know, let's, okay, let's say that in some point in the future, we become this video only society where nobody reads anymore. There still needs to be somebody sitting there thinking about words that are going to be said or shown on screen. We're not just going to look at a bunch of pictures. We still need a story. We still need a story. I know I'm rambling on too long, but I'm going to give you one of my favorite lines ever. Stories are the currency of a relationship. So if you don't have hmm. stories to trade, you can't build relationships. And stories are written
0: things. Love it. Yeah, it's, I mean it's just organized thought and I feel like what you just said is whether it's video, audio, everything else is a riff off of that original organized thought, that thought put to paper and it's it's like the like the building block of of everything else and I feel like it's just not cool to do it or to to become good at it in today's world. And as just as a place to start, I already know this is going to be my favorite podcast, at least that we do today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, 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 I, I just love how we're already starting out in in agreement here. So as you moved on from a writer, tell us about the rest of of what got you to where you are today.
3: Well, I was working. I mean, this is a cough, cough. A few years ago, when I started in the business, fresh out of school, and uh, you know, ad agencies were still what we called. What has today developed into marketing firms, strategy firms, communication firms, creative companies, we just all called, we just called them all ad agencies back when I began. So working Mm -hmm. in an ad agency, you either were on the writing, creative, kooky idea side, or you were on the client facing project management side. So I'd (laughs) I'd actually was on the client facing project management side and then realized that the writers and creative people look like they're having way more fun. So I switched over there. Went, you know, bounced around like you do when you're out of school at the beginning of your career and ended up in a few different places. And finally, just threw my hands up in the air one day and said, I'm going to start my own. And by that point, I'd managed to find my way to Vancouver, Canada, and started a little company and found a partner. And before you knew it, it seemed like a blink of an eye. We were at 30 people. And we were working with companies all over, which for Vancouver, I mean, I know there's companies all over North America way bigger than that. But here, you know, the average size of a little company like ours would have been maybe 10 or 15. So we had 30. We were like the big dogs. Uh And then just started noticing something that was really disturbing that we were spending so much time and so much money and sleeping under the boardroom table and ordering pizzas because we had a pitch tomorrow morning and all that stuff. (laughs) And we were targeting groups of people who to put it bluntly, didn't show up. Mm. Things would work sometimes. And they wouldn't work other times. But there was yep. no way to put your finger on why one thing worked and one thing didn't. And even when things worked, it was always a little bit of a head scratcher. Why, for example, when we were we did a lot of work in the in the condo development industry. So a big giant condominium tower was built. We we thought we knew who was coming. So we were doing all this advertising and marketing to try and get them to come and buy condos. We were successful. It worked. People bought the condos, but then we'd, we'd go to the opening a couple of years after the campaign had finished and we'd look around the room and there wasn't a single person in the room who matched the demographic description that we were using to try and sell the condos. <laughs> like I, I, I joke about it and say, you know, Bob, Bob and Sally were our target and there was no Bob's or Sally's in the room. So yeah, uh, it was, uh, but you know what? We sold out. So we just went and did it again and again and again and again. And it wasn't just condos. It was everything that we were working on. This the same sort of hit or miss. And even when it was a hit, it was like, wow, well, these aren't the right people, but at least somebody came. So you start reversing that and picking it apart and looking at it and you're like, Okay, something's going on here. There's some sort of unknown that I can't quite put my finger on, and then a whole bunch of other things happened to me and you know come we hit the recession and we got smaller and then we grew and then I sold the firm to the management team about three or four years ago, and I was sitting down to write a book because this had always been my new business strategy. I like to say that you know before. There was the term thought leader, and before there was the term content marketing. I had figured out that if I write a book, I'll get invited to speak at conferences, and that's so they don't my, have
0: to read the book, right? They yeah, just no, no, no. talk about the book. Yeah, yeah.
3: nobody ever <laughs> reads the book. It's it's just the world's most inconvenient business card. That's what a book is. Right. I'm kidding. I'm uh-huh. kidding. Uh, so yeah, we were content marketing and being thought leaders, and so I sold the firm and decided to write a book and. I sat down. I was going to write a book, another book about the real estate development niche that I'd always worked in. And the title of the book was The boomerennials And I, has, <laughs> had, I had convinced myself that the, the thing that needed to be said was that we were building condo towers for people based on demographic clusters that this is around mm-hmm. that moment in time where all the uh, millennial bashing was started in the media, you know, millennials, this millennials that they're ruining everything. They're eating all the avocados, all that stuff. So <laughs> I, and it just sort of, I, the previous book I'd written a bit about baby boomers and all the same stuff the media was saying about the millennials had applied to the research we'd done. Could, it could be applied to the research we'd done for boomers. So it's like, wait a minute, these are, these are kind of the same folks. So we'd done a bunch of surveys and we'd found that in fact, nobody wants to live in a tower with people the same age. Uh, They thought that sounded terrible. Using a (laughs) a, a direct quote from some of the survey respondents, this was 7,000 surveys across North America at this point. Some of them had said the word ghetto, that living in a building full of people the same age of me is a ghetto. I don't want to be there. But what we did find that we didn't expect was that they said in various ways, but you could kind of piece it all together. They were all saying that I will pay more than market price for an apartment or a condo. If you can just tell me one thing, I don't really care so much about your kitchen. I don't care about the floor plans. All that stuff's really interesting. But what I care about most, what will make me pay as much as 15% more than market is just one thing. I want to know that I'm going to be living with people where I feel like I belong where there's some sense of shared values. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that's why we're going to call the book The Boomerannios, and we're going to go out there and say, listen, we got to stop building things based on demographic clusters like age. A tower for boomers, they don't want it, and they'll pay more if you stop it and do something else. And we have the answer, which is let's build buildings for people based on what their shared values are. So that was cool. And then I sold my condo and I bought an old one in a 1950s building and I renovated and I spent, you know, two years ready to shoot my contractor and all that stuff and running over budget (laughs) and living in a hotel when we ran out of, you know, all those things. And then I put, I got back to write this book. I was like, wait a minute, why is this just condos? Why wouldn't this be sunglasses, vacations, bank accounts, and everything? If values are more important than demographics, this has to apply across the board. So we called the, research team back up and said, uh, okay, well, we'd like to go and figure this out now. And so we did. 40,000 surveys later is when we became statistically accurate for Canada and the United States. And as of today, we're at just over half a million surveys and we are statistically accurate for 180 countries in the world using 152 different languages and more data, more precise data than you need for six or seven PhDs from Harvard. So this stuff's Bulletproof. That sounds like
1: a insanely <laughs> It's the mother complex. of all spreadsheets. That yes. sounds like an insanely complex <laughs> data set. Like.
0: Well, and as someone who is technically labeled a millennial, but my closest, my sister is nine years older than me. My brother is 12 years older than me. All my friends were Gen Xers because I went to school, was 40 minutes away from where I live, So the people I hung out with were always older than me or baby boomers even. I've never... Felt personally that demographics were a good way to organize or categorize people. Yeah, we don't all
3: have friends the same age.
0: Yeah, right. Do, do you feel like demographics ever was a great tool or was it simply a way to sell advertising?
3: Ah, good question. I think there was a point in history where if we didn't act our age, there was there were ramifications.
0: Ah, social pressure. Well, social pressure
3: and even even more. I mean, it depends how back you how far back in history you want to go. There was a a moment in time when we were still just sort of figuring out how to live together and and be non-wandering tribes. Where if you were a mm-hmm. certain age and you weren't pulling your weight, and for young women, that meant, you know, producing babies. And for young men, that meant uh, killing the saber-toothed tiger and going to war and fighting the next village mm-hmm. down the street, and all the things you had to do just to survive. There were ages at which you were expected to have accomplished certain things. And the rich guy in town, his job was to do certain stuff. And the poor guy in town, his job was to do certain stuff. Men did different things than women. It was a very, very stratified way of living because we had to, or else we would not survive. But today, we can do kind of anything we want. And yet we're still using this tool, this demographic tool, to try and understand behavior. Which is just, when you think about it at that you know, 40,000 foot level, it's insane that we're using a tool from millennium ago mm-hmm. to use on modern day, technologically advanced, fully connected, always on, multi screen people.
0: So you got this tool and you've got all this research behind it. You gave it the name Value Graphics. Why that name?
3: I want people to think about this. We need, not, I don't want, I think we need to have people thinking about this in the same set as demographics and psychographics. It's a third kind of X. We still need demographics because demographics are a great way to describe a target audience. So let's say, let's say we're building houses. We know that based on the price point and the location and the city and the, what else is around this house, it's probably, I'm going to make something up here, not going to sell to 18 to 24-year-old girls who work in a uh, grocery store. It's going to be somebody who's got a lot more money and is probably further on in their life and has probably got a, a partner and has maybe even had some kids. Let's, let's say that's the divide we're looking at here. So you still okay. need to understand the demographics that you're talking to because there's going to be certain things that are just logical for that, for that age. Psychographics are a record of how people have behaved in a category before. So we may know about this demographic that we want to target that psychographically, this is their third house, that they always buy new, that they take two and a half months to make a decision. So those are psychographic facts that yeah. they're not I became
0: obsessed with psychographics back in 2004, 2005 when well, Nielsen's PRISM database was oh yeah. kind of really popular. And yeah, so that was uh, you're already answering one of my other questions, which is, Kind of what is the difference between value graphics and psychographics? Because I think that would be a common misconception that you're kind of relabeling psychographics, which you're not.
3: No, no, no. It's a, it's a third kind of ick. So you still need demographics. Psychographics are interesting and good to know. And I guess future predictive in one sense, which is if somebody has been buying uh, or having one cup of coffee every day for their whole life, you can predict that they're probably going to continue to have one cup of coffee every day for the rest of their life. Value graphics are the first time we've had accurate data that can tell you if I can get you to stop drinking coffee, switch you to Red Bull, make you drink a different brand of coffee, or maybe get you to drink six cups of coffee a day. If I know your value Hmm. graphics, I can predict how you will behave next. Demographics don't do that. Psychographics don't do that. All these companies that are out there scraping the internet, trying to figure out what is everybody saying on social about brand X? Therefore, this is what brand X needs to do. No, that's just a record of how people are behaving up till now. It's not any indication of what what you could get them to do
1: later that's different than what they're doing now. So value graphics would be more predictive almost. um, What's that Tom Cruise movie? Minority report where they're predicting crime in <laughs> yeah. the future. Yeah, yeah, it
3: definitely has that that that. You uh, <laughs> you you can paint oh, this in a very dark way insane. if you like. It, it's it's uh, it is the ability to understand what people value because what we value determines what we do, and that's just a proven basic yeah. psychological sociological fact, right? So if you're a, if you're a psychologist, for example, you can give someone an MMPI inventory or a Myers Briggs test. And you figure out what their values are, and then you can sit down with them and go, okay, so your values are out of alignment with your reality, and that's why you are doing this behavior. So we want to change this behavior. Let's intervene here. The difference is we've just never been able to do this with an entire target audience before. So now we can. Now we can say this group of people who are attracted to this product, what they have in common is family authority, and let's say environmentalism. Now, if we know those are the triggers that influence their behavior, we can intervene and we can say, "Hmm, let's use those three buttons. Let's push those buttons in a way that talks about our product and draws their interest over to what it is we're trying to get them to do.
0: I love it. I I mean, in some ways, I want to help people who are listening who who might have misconceptions, because this is maybe something they've not heard Or or thought about before. Are you talking about value graphics as a niche within demographics? Because your book titled We Are All the Same Age Now would make me feel like you're definitely not. But I just think that might be a common misconception here.
3: Yeah, no. Demographics, psychographics, and value graphics exist on their own and they all do their own jobs. What we've been doing wrong is trying to get demographics and psychographics to predict future behavior. And they don't. The only thing that predicts how you're going to behave is your values Suddenly, we have a tool to do this for entire target audiences.
0: For single family home builders, which is the majority of our audiences, a changing behavior would be hey, don't buy another used home the second, third, fourth time around. Consider new. Consider new?
3: Absolutely. Uh, My community is the one you should come and live in, the community that I'm building homes in. And here's why you know, think about it like this I talked to to the companies that I work with about uh, the eternal grocery store, the infinite grocery store. Every item on the grocery store shelf is a different thing you might talk about, a different tactic, a strategy, something that mm. you might use as a way to decide how you're going to talk to your target audience. And what we've been doing is wandering up and down the aisles and going, oh, let's give this a try. Everybody likes cinnamon. Let's, let's take cinnamon. <laughs> and instead, we now have a tool that can go into that grocery store and go, okay, you don't need to, they don't care about the cinnamon. They're, they don't hate it, but they don't care about it. But they all like, all of them, your whole target audience likes bananas, they like peanut butter, and they like white bread. So we're going to take those three things out of here. We're going to make all of our decisions based on those three things. We can make a bunch of different stuff with those three things, and we can do this in a bunch of different ways. But what's important here is none of the rest of that stuff in the world's largest grocery store, the infinite grocery store, none of it matters. Don't waste your time talking about cinnamon. It's not a commonly held ingredient it's not a commonly held value in the way people make their decisions it's only bananas bread and peanut butter
0: so medium message how far along the communication strategy advertising how broadly do you feel that this applies because i again i can hear people thinking this is awesome i'm gonna go figure out some value graphic information just so i can figure out where i should run my next set of ads that i already designed last week
3: Right. The answer is there there isn't anything that you're doing about your product, your service, whatever it is you're trying to put out into the market. There isn't anything you're doing that shouldn't be thought about through the set of values that your customers are using. So I talk about the three C's, culture, creation, and communication. Your internal culture needs to be ramped so that it's matching the values that your customers are looking for so that means you're hiring people who reflect their values who know how to talk into their values you're answering the phone in a way that reflects and respects their values and triggers those values you're doing everything you can to make sure that your company matches the values that your consumers are looking for then we move to creation what product are you building if people are huge family people that's a different kind of kitchen layout than people who don't have any interest or time for family uh there's there's a simple concrete answer. Uh, then the third piece is communication. every touch point in from from physical touch points where somebody's touring a home to uh, online digital ads to uh, social media posts to to story creation, everything you do. If you know how people are going to make a decision, then filter all your stories through that. Use those few ingredients from the grocery store uh, and make that the way you tell all your stories and position everything. Let me give you, um, I'll give you an example. We did a project. I'm back on towers because it's what I've done mostly, but this would apply to a house or a, or a community as, as well. So for this particular tower we were working on in Phoenix, it was a rental tower and they had a swimming pool on the roof uh, and every tower in Phoenix has a swimming pool on the roof or the backyard or the <laughs> side yard. Sorry, it's, it's Phoenix. It's 180 degrees yeah. out all the time, right? So there's always a yep. no swimming pool. Every other tower says, Oh my gosh, this swimming pool is amazing. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to love it. It's like being on vacation 24, 7, 365. We have misters. We have palm trees. We have lounge chairs. There's going to be a keg party on Saturdays. You'll meet the woman of your dreams, the man of your dreams. It's like, um, Oh my God. Yeah. I live at a resort. Well, we, mm-hmm. Did a value graphics profile for this tower, and we found out that the people who were all attracted to this tower all shared a, a few different values. But one that I'm telling the story about is creativity. They saw themselves as creative people. So all we did with that swimming pool, same swimming pool. In fact, I think they were able to take some of the the costs out of building that swimming pool. We just said, listen, this is the endorphin pool. This is the pool, <laughs> this is the pool you come to when you get stuck. On your creative project whatever that might be and you need to just get a little adrenaline a little endorphin uh, hit and you're going to be able to go back to your project and be more creative so if you choose to live in our building we gotcha we understand what it Uh is to be a creative person so that's all we did was just switch the way the story got told now if we had started on that project earlier in the process and we knew that creative people were coming I mean, amenities in that building might have been a a dark room, uh, a a paint room, um, maybe even a pottery room, uh, certainly places to display your creative output. Uh, They don't want a billiards room. What a silly waste of space that's going to be. Uh, They don't want an an in-house movie theater unless there's some reason why we can tie that back to a story about how it's going to make me feel more creative. So if you go to a single family home and you just pick one item, like let's say, I know a favorite one, environmentalism. This is a really strong value for a lot of people, Uh, Mm -hmm. particularly over the last few weeks where we've seen climate action happening around the world. It's very interesting. But if we go and find out that the people coming to a particular community, a single family home community, or even a particular single family home, um, it's not an important value to them that what they have in common, the buyer group, the target audience is, are, are, are the things they're still up to you as a builder, as a, as a developer to be responsible and, and do things in an environmentally sensible way, but don't put right. that at the front of your story. Don't make that the headline yeah. and the positioning for your product because your people are not going to make a decision based on environmentalism, unless that's one of their
0: core values. Yep. We've seen this and play out all kinds of different ways over the last uh, decade or two, When it, whether it's the idea of green building energy efficiency. Builders here in the States made that mistake of doing it as merely a way of our home is better. And the customer said, OK, but it could instead of making the price $10,000 more because of this, could I just get the countertop that I want? And so I understand exactly what you're talking about. Two things, people who have listened to this podcast for a long time will realize that we've talked a lot about as a marketer, your job is to not just be in advertising. Because what I'm hearing you say so much is, is that value graphics and this approach means that advertising and product have to be connected in a way that unfortunately for a lot of marketers, they're just tasked with, here's this widget, house, condo, whatever it is, get a whole bunch of people to show up for a party. And hopefully we'll convert some of them. And it's important, I think, for a person to ultimately be successful in their career to work backwards as close to the product as possible so that there is that natural alignment.
3: Absolutely. I mean, marketing tends to be the, the the middle sister in the business world that you know d- doesn't get any attention until the last minute, where they're like, "Okay, we've built this thing, we've designed this <laughs> thing, we produced this thing, and oh right, we better tell somebody about this stuff." Uh, yeah. and, you, marketing guys, come in here and wave your magic marketing mojo over this and see what happens. Uh, and you better get it right. And if you do get it right, it was because our product was amazing. And if you fail, it's your fault. So uh, marketers are in a tough, tough spot. And I think one of the best things for me as an ex guy running one of these companies uh, is that now we can stand up in front of our clients and say, you know what? The fact that your wife doesn't like this because she hates green is not my problem. I have a half a million surveys in a data set behind me that have said, these are the three things this story needs to be about. Now, if you want to argue with me about font or about, you know, the size of your logo, (laughs) that's fine. We can do that. But in terms of what's the strategy, what are we going to say? How do we go to market? We can now do that with data instead of, Oh, I hope they buy this one. Uh, this seems like it makes sense. It worked for the last three guys. Well, you don't want the same thing that worked for the last three guys. And by the way, the people who they thought they were talking to didn't show up, as of my career proved. So what you yeah. want is to figure out what do people actually care about who are going to really come and live here. And then if all you get to do is play around with how you tell the story about the swimming pool, Fine. Ideally, you take that information and it gets, as you've just said, backwards integrated into the whole product right from the design stage. It should be who's coming. What do they care about? Let's
0: build it for them. Yep. So the other thing as you're talking that I want to help you clarify for the listeners is how much it sounds like a lot of what you're describing. Some people might say is persona based uh right. messaging or, or communication. Yes. How do value graphics work with personas?
3: Well, value graphics have sort of said personas are amazing, but we have to rip them up the way we've been making them, which is to look at a demographic group and say, okay, we're talking to uh, uh, 60-year-old uh potential home buyers and they hate technology. So if there's going to be any technology in this thing, it better be like one big button that they push and it's just on <laughs> or off because they don't like uh. any of that stuff. Well, what our database has proven is that's dead wrong. Just as much as it is wrong for us to continue. You know what, what drives me crazy now that I'm so focused on this stuff is you go into the toy store and look at the pink toys and the blue toys like what mm-hmm. really I mean that's not just an issue yeah. about sexism that's an issue around making assumptions based on demographics right. that young people mm-hmm. are going to be like this and old people are going to be like that and rich people are going to be let's talk about rich versus poor let's talk about wealthy uh, buyers and, and 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 less fortunate buyers For the 80s and the 90s when we were building homes and even into the 2000s and the 2000s and 2010s there was this assumption that boomers all wanted status. So we were putting in crazy expensive kitchens with brand names. And like, if we could have figured out a way to have Greco-Roman pillars at the front door of every, (laughs) you know, it was like, status me put more status on me. These guys love this stuff. Well, it turns out that boomers, there's a small portion of them who like status, but there's a small portion of millennials who do and a small portion of Gen Z who do as well. All boomers do not want Greco-Roman pillars at the front door. Uh, So we were building stuff and then trying to force square pegs into round holes instead of knowing up front, what did this particular set of boomers care about? And let's build homes for them.
0: Yeah. And a little bit of the moth to a flame of you build the right product with the right messaging, you will attract the right people. You still need to be smart about the channels you're using to send that message out, but they will find you as much as you find them or oh, is that too absolutely. far?
3: No, no. Okay. It's, um, I mean, the channels, all you all it's going to do in terms of buying media is help you be better at buying media. You still will have a demographic to use for those media who aren't sophisticated enough to offer you anything other than demographic segments to choose between. You still know your demographic, but within that demographic, you know exactly what to say to that, what portion of that demographic who will be activated most by your product and by what messages around your product. So you just get better and better at, at being a, a rifle instead of a shotgun in terms of how you're approaching your target audience. And then in digital media, many of them still do give you some opportunities to use some psychographic targeting. Uh, Even some of them are starting to get a little bit better about branching out from there and getting into a little bit of values-based stuff, but it's kind of hit or miss. This is the first data set in the world ever in the history of humans where we've been able to figure out what everyone in the world gives a damn about, what they all care about. So you know, Facebook, Google, those guys, uh, they should come and talk to me one day and maybe I'll help
1: them out. No, I was just uh, going to
0: say, let's dial up Mark, Mark Zuckerberg right get now and get, yeah, get you in That's like the, this
1: is a perfect setup for my questions where I, where I wanted to lead us. So there's been a lot of changes this year with, with Facebook, especially on the real estate side. Um, and then just going back to like 2016 and then uh, Mark Zuckerberg going on testimony in Washington and, and all the influences that can happen with Facebook ads. So with real estate most recently, you know, they took away a lot of the the targeting that we we have even down to like the there's no, there's demographic, no demographic targeting at, age gender we can't all. change even the mile radius now it has to be a minimum of 15 miles which is which is quite big but what we preach and what we've seen is is giving Facebook more control where they optimize the delivery of the campaigns or the ads based on the actions of the people clicking it past that we they don't really give the insight I think it because they would be Um, There could probably be a lot of negative press if they gave like, here's how we decide who to show the ads to based on your action and this other set of Mm. data that they say they don't know or they, they don't want to be completely transparent on. Um, How does, how does value graphics and Facebook ads kind of intermingle and live with, with each other?
3: Right. It's a huge question, but I'm going to blow it out and make it about social media in general. I don't want to pick on one. Sounds good. Um, Awesome. So... All of our data comes from social media. Now, before we jump to, oh, but what about people who aren't on social media? It's like the latest stat is 96% of the entire world is on some platform or another. Yeah,
0: that's (laughs) audience, you don't have to worry about that with. We're we're all good here. Okay, (laughs) okay,
3: good. Uh, And so uh, what we do to build our benchmark study in the first place is we use the targeting tools that are available through social media as a way to decide who gets to see a survey. That way, our database isn't just half a million surveys. It's actually what the statisticians call, you ready for this? I hope you're sitting down. They call it a random stratified statistically representative sample of the population. And all that means is it's like an exact miniature of the real world, we have the same proportionate number of men and women, mm. old and young, rich and poor, urban, rural, wow. for every country in the world that we are accurate. So it's a really, really highly yeah. organized set of data. And the way we've been able to do that is by using the targeting tools that come to us through social media that they think are for advertisers. We're using them to place surveys in front. of, Okay, we're running low on middle-aged women from Des Moines. Get some more of them in here. Yeah. Uh, so, so we can yeah. fill up the, the the buckets that we need. Um, sure. Now because of that the data that comes out is is largely formed by the capabilities of social media so it means that if you use this data it's largely applicable back into social media because that's where it originated from so it's a uh, there's a very I mean, it's not a 100% overlap, but if our data comes out and says that the people coming to your your particular home are entirely focused on the environment, there are social media tools out there that will let you search and figure out how to talk to groups, how to talk to uh, lists, how to talk to whoever it is based on the platform we're talking about, who have an interest in the environment, and therefore you know you're targeting people. Uh, I talk about it this way. Uh, We've been slicing a loaf of bread in a regular old way for a very long time. And that's how we've been looking at demographics. Mm -hmm. This slices 18-year-olds, this slices men, this slices whatever. All we're doing is suggesting that you slice the loaf the other direction, the the quote-unquote wrong way, and find the values that are common across all those segments. And you may find that you've actually got a baguette here that it's going to stretch outside of what you think your demographics are. That interest group will be much wider and broader than it was ever when you were doing it with the the vertical slices. So Mm -hmm. you just take that little segment that's going across all these demographics and you apply it back into the same demographic tools that you've always used to buy your media with, but now you know how to do it a little bit smarter. You can add a couple of extra filters. You can even use human intuition and a brain and say – Okay, well, based on what I know about my customers, these channels with this skew around these things and that particular group uh, makes a ton of sense that may have not been fed up to me that way through uh, the program I'm using to determine where to place my digital um, my digital hits. Mm -hmm. But but you can sort of start to make some more high level decisions about where you're going to place money and where you're going to place those messages if you
1: understand what people actually care about
3: and not just their demographics and psychographics
1: to me tying back to like the very beginning we talked about writing being important this kind of the change that we have with facebook where we have more limited options and then combining that with value graphics what we say and the creative being used could be even more important than than ever And we'll probably you're
0: going going right where where I was going to Andrew, the exact word is
1: what we talk about super precise. It needs to be really thought about because that will determine how Facebook is optimizing the delivery, essentially.
0: Yeah. Well, well, what we talk about, David, with with our builders and uh, at different conferences that we'll speak about on this topic is that. Facebook's AI is like a little dog. It's it's a companion, and we tell it the result that we want to have occur. So if we tell the dog, "You're going to get more treats if you get more form completions, or more phone calls, or text messages, or whatever outcome-based thing," we tell the AI we want. It says, "Great, I will in this 15 mile radius. I'll, I'll figure out the people most likely to convert." And I think what Andrew and I are saying is. Understanding value graphics, even though we can't adjust at all the demographics of how we're targeting, instead of just getting people who like to fill out a form, we may get the right kind of people who are most likely to purchase and fill out a form because Facebook understands the imagery that we're choosing and the copy that we're writing. It's analyzing that and and can take that into account. And so we can kind of direct the AI without implicitly pushing the button saying we want people who are older or younger simply by making the the decisions and the messaging and, and the creative, we can kind of help the little dog understand more precisely what we're trying to do.
3: Yeah. And I, what that, at the end of the day, what that ends up doing is saving you so much wastage because mm-hmm. you're going to be talking to people who are actually compelled around your product or service. So the first thing that'll happen is whoever's in charge of the marketing department is going to freak right out because their numbers are down. Oh my God, we only have, I don't know what the number is. Five hundred people registered to come and look at this thing, instead of five thousand. And we and the but five thousand in that five thousand, there's only five hundred. We all know that it's one in ten. So there's only right. five hundred who are actually interested. And of that five hundred, there's only uh, fifty who are going to actually show up and look at this display home. And of that fifty, there's going to be five who actually are keen enough and in the right financial position and it's the right moment and timing for them that they might think about putting an offer. Uh, so. <laughs> I would rather talk to five people than 5,000 and be all over them. Now, I'm not going to say that the value graph is going to get you to five, but it's going to get you away from 5,000, maybe closer to 500. And then if you're smart about how you, oh gosh, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but, um, but we're all the same age now, so it doesn't matter. So everybody can just <laughs> deal with it. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, there's there's been a race to automation in the marketing world where uh-huh. if we can find ways to push to have the buttons pushed for us, where we just yeah. have to load up a couple things and then suddenly the machines take over, uh, that's seen as being better. Um, and I think that there's some very low level tasks in the marketing world where it is probably better than having it done manually the way it was back in the day. However, I think it's also stopped us from just sitting back and having a think and going, okay, so if I just use this tool or this particular platform, or I go down this road and follow these process steps, and I assign this to the junior in my my department, no one's actually thinking about this and saying to themselves, you know... Now that we know these things about what our customers actually care about, I don't care what this machine is telling me we should do. I think we should just tweak it a bit this way and favor that a bit more than this and actually use our brains and not just rely on automation and repetition as a way to to get the messages out there into the world.
0: No, I
1: think you. <laughs> that's very we're we're, we're all part
0: of the same old man's club yes. here. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, p- part of what you're saying that that I talk to people about every day, and they always turn their head like that confused child or pet uh, when you're saying it. Of you don't need this many leads, and they're like, "What are you? What are you talking about? You more leads? Do you even have a way to connect with that many people? Truly, N- no. That's why we have these quality score metrics and all this other stuff. Yeah, so we yeah, figure yeah. out. All the leads, who should we? I'm like, well, what if you just stop waste? I mean, the the idea of how much waste is in all of our systems simply because we're trying to prove to others that we uh, are good at our jobs is crazy. Yeah. and automation can get us even further to the wrong place faster than help. A lot of times when people aren't thinking about the right way to apply it, and and if it's making the inner the experience of of the customer more human, i.e., higher value or less human. Um, because that, anyway, uh, you're, you don't need to, again, you're in the right place to have this, this kind of a talk.
3: Well, I'm glad <laughs> I've got some friends here because it's uh sometimes it's a conversation that people don't want to hear that, uh, they're, they're they've managed to trim their marketing teams down to like two people because they've got all these automated tools that make all the decisions and do everything. And they really just need someone who can punch in the stuff. And I'm like, wow. So who's actually sitting back and thinking about this and deciding whether they're, doing the right thing. Uh, it's, um, it's, I think it's the way, uh, the industry, the marketing industry can save itself yeah. is, is there's going to be a tool that comes along and replaces pretty much all of us at some point, but no one's going to be able to replace human intuition and knowledge around how values apply in a particular case. That's the secret sauce you need in order to be intuitive accurately.
0: Yeah. Well, and this is going to be a broad general statement, which is always, always terrible, but I've been thinking a lot about this, that human interaction is the only, especially human interaction with people who share our values or share our blood. So one of those two things is the one thing that as human beings, the vast majority of us do not ever get tired of. Uh It's something that doesn't lose value over time. Like any other Dopamine drip, right? The more you get of it, the eventually you're like, "Yeah, that's not as much fun or as interesting as it used to be." But that human connection is something that we're just hardwired to never. We, we there might be times where we need a break. We got to go on vacation. Well, let me give but you then some after. Yeah,
3: let me give you some data about that. Uh, oh, cool. So across uh, the the North American data set alone, let's just talk that because I think most of your uh, most of your. Um, Listeners are going to be North American based. So in North America,
0: Hello,
3: Australia. Hope you're having a good day. (laughs) Uh, The the folks from the U.S., if we just look at the North American data set in the value graphics database, we've got about 100,000 surveys in there. It's because we've been using it longer than we've been using the other parts of the world. It was the first thing that we got complete. And our process involves Mm -hmm. drip feeding new info in all the time. So the more you use this tool, the bigger and better it gets. Anyway, my point being, the number one value across all segments All ages, all incomes, education, marital status, gender. None of those things matter as much as one value, which is belonging. Hmm. We're all looking to belong. We want to fit in. We want to know who our people are. We want to be with them. So your hunch around the fact that human interaction is the one thing we never get tired of is entirely right. And I would say now, based on the data, it's not only the one thing we don't get ever, we ever get, it's the one, it's now not only the only thing we never get tired of. It's also the only thing we're constantly looking for more of. We're striving for Mm -hmm. it. We're, 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 we're jonesing for it. How do I get more belongingness in my life?
0: And so I call it the technological stiff arm. We, we, as marketers, we try to attract all these people to us. And then we say, here's the chat bot. Here's the AI. Here's this other thing. No, you only get to a human if you pass these other gauntlets. And that just seems like complete madness. Well,
3: it's funny that if you look at some of the loyalty programs for, I do a lot of traveling. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about loyalty programs in the travel industry for airlines and hotels and car rental companies, two things. Mm-hmm. First one is the more senior you are, the higher up the, 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 the rank in terms of you're a platinum member, not a gold member. One of the perks is you actually get to talk to a human. Isn't that interesting? Like if I'm a platinum level guy from uh, airline X, then I have a direct line to a human being who can help me with stuff. If I'm not platinum, you got to deal with the robots, man. That's your punishment for not being loyal enough. It is a punishment. Yeah, it is a punishment. So that's one thing. And then the other thing has nothing to do with what we're talking about, except if anybody from the travel industry is listening to this, please, please, please stop making rewards for the higher echelons of your, of your loyalty program entirely based on carbohydrates. I, <laughs> I do not want another platter of free donuts and chocolate bars, please. You wonder why everybody who travels so much is getting so out of shape. It's just like, hi, thanks for being a platinum member. Come into our private lounge, have some croissants and a bunch of candy and booze.
0: <laughs> well, okay. uh, the, the last thing for me, and then we'll <laughs> let you close this out is I still, I still hold this grudge against American express because Nine years ago, 10 years ago, I became an American Express card holder. and I've never had anything special or unique. There is no relationship there. And I still have the card because I put all my business expenses on it helps me keep my life organized that way. But it's like, wait, there was this promise of there's this gonna be this connection, this thing created by having this card. And all I've ever gotten is maybe a handful of surveys saying, please, dear valued card member, please tell us. I'm like, delete now because I'm not valued. No yeah. one's ever said, here's this this additional perk or, or insight. It's just, yep. uh, so I understand what you're saying.
3: I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll, we'll, we'll match stories here. So back in 2008, when the economy came crashing down, particularly in the housing market, I'd been a frequent traveler with a particular airline and I was up in their like top tier um, loyalty club member. Uh, and because we all stopped traveling, because global recession, financial market collapse, yeah. that thing, uh, I didn't travel as much. And I got a note, a, a, a robot note saying, you haven't traveled <laughs> as much as you have in the past. You've now been de- Oh, my. <laughs> uh, instead of sending me a note and going, I understand we've heard about this thing called the global economic collapse, particularly in the housing market. <laughs> so we're going to just extend your benefits for a year and hope you get out of this, buddy. Uh, I would have been loyal right. for the rest of my life. And all they would have had to do is carry on handing me free chocolates and croissants and I would have been a happy guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. no, they had to punish me. Uh, Because some robot told them to. So there's a great way to wrap this up back to human insight around human values is the only way our industry and in fact, all of us, I believe, are going to survive as we move forward into a world where more and more machines, AI, machine learning are going to be integral to the way we live. We need to make sure Mm -hmm. that we're managing to maintain these things that can't be automated, at least not yet, and I hope never so.
0: I love it. It's amazing. David, thanks so much for taking all this time with us today. Definitely. We'll put a link in the show notes to your book and, and all that you do, but everyone listening should definitely check you out. How, how do they get in touch with, I mean, the, who are the people to talk to if they want to learn more about value graphics? Sure. There's
3: all kinds of ways to do that, but um, I want to say two quick things on that subject and I hope you guys keep this in the edit. Uh, the first one is go to value to graphics.com. If you want to reach out or read some more stuff that uh, constantly putting things up there. So you can, it's like a crash course on how to think using values. But but this is the piece that is kind of weird. Um, I I don't want to pimp out my book, but, uh, I want to say first that I make about $2 on every book that I sell. So it's not a big deal. Um, the, 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 the the reason I do mention my book, which is available on amazon.com and it's called, uh, we are all the same age now. The data in there is a little out of date because it was almost a year ago. But in there, what we did at the time with the 75,000 surveys we did have for North America is we found the top 10 most aligned, most powerful new archetypes that we can use to replace things like boomers and millennials and and Hmm. Generation X. And we give them to you. There's a a quiz in there. uh, There's an answer key. And there's a chapter devoted to each one of those. So essentially, for the cost of a book, which I believe is about 13 bucks or something, you get to use value graphics for free. Uh, it's going to be a rough back of the napkin sketch kind of way, but at least sure yeah. at least you're going down the right road now. So I hope everybody gets a book, not so that I get two bucks. Cause that's not important. What's, <laughs> what's important is I want people to start using value graphics. Cause I think this is just going to lead to a better world. If we all start using values instead of horrible old stereotypes that should have been gone a long time ago. Um, we're going to make not just our lives easier and better, but we're going to make the world a better place too.
0: Completely agreed. Yeah, no, we are all the same age now on Amazon. Again, link in the show notes. will be there uh, to check out quickly and easily. David, thanks again.
3: Thank you. Fantastic Thank you. Uh, that was fun. time spent. Thanks, guys. Take care.
0: All right. Uh, David is a thinker. And, you know, what I really like is he didn't just have this idea and it's all theory, but now he's, you know, run all of these different, well, surveys, quizzes uh, to figure out all these different commonalities between different types of people. And so he's really putting some data behind the theory, which is, we're always excited about that. All right, Becca, read the new question of the week. We've slacked. I don't think we've had a question of the week for two or three times. So let's bring it back because this is my favorite part when you guys get a chance to interact with us in the Facebook group during the week. Take it away.
2: Has your builder ever been surprised by the buyer profile it thought it would be purchasing in the community before it was developed?
0: So before the community existed in the planning stages and even the pre-marketing stages, maybe even the grand opening phase, you're just kind of surprised like, wow, we thought it was going to be this type of buyer uh, and it ended up we were completely wrong. And my example that I think I've maybe told before, we were doing a townhome project, uh, kind of an infill at Heartland, and we thought for sure it was going to be dual income, no kids, uh, hit, hit, kind of hipster kids with with mm-hmm. uh, young younger folks who had a lot of money or were, were connected to families that had a lot of money and because it was very walkable, very desirable part of town uh, with a lot of older money around it. And boy, were we surprised. And thankfully, we we're using the pre-sale without fail process. But when we got the <laughs> VIP event and we were talking through the product, everyone who wanted to purchase wanted to die in a townhome with an elevator. And we're like, these are three or four story townhomes. Do you like old older folks want to walk? Nope. They don't want to walk up down the stairs. They wanted to. They're like every question. Well, where's the elevator? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thankfully, we had enough time. Actually, we found that out in the pre-survey. And so by the time we held the actual event, we had an elevator option in there. But we were just way off. And all the demographic studies and the third parties that we had paid for insight into who, who the buyers were around there was uh, telling us something different than we ended up finding out. And so that's just the question. Whether you personally or the builder that you've worked for, you've heard that story in the past where you were either pleasantly surprised or disappointed to find out that what you had planned and the message you put in place didn't quite match the original buyer profile that was coming in the door once you opened. Interesting. Yeah. It happens. And yeah, you know, you just gotta, you gotta be able to pivot quickly. No yeah. doubt. All right. Well that'll do it for this week for published articles, blog posts, videos, and more check out deconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. Have a good week. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.